Friends, I want us to imagine there are two men with us today, two men in very different spiritual conditions. One man is in favor with God. He has been reconciled to God. God was once his enemy, but no longer. Now he's a man filled with the Spirit. He's a child of the new covenant and coming into his eternal reward. In short, he is a forgiven sinner. The other fellow is not. His sin remains unforgiven. He is not reconciled to God. God's wrath still remains upon him, the just punishment for his rebellion, his idolatry. Two men, two completely different spiritual conditions. Friends, what is the basis, what is the basis for the first man's salvation? How is it that God has granted this man forgiveness of sin and eternal life, though he's a rebel, and just as sinful and deserving of condemnation as the other guy is? I want you to answer that question in your mind right now. What is the sole basis for God's favor towards that man? But be careful, there's only one correct biblical answer to that question. All right, a second question, related question. Concerning this first man, this person who is in favor with God, what are the signs, what is the biblical evidence, both to himself and to others, that he is indeed a child of God, filled with God's Spirit, and a new creation in Christ Jesus? Or what amounts to the same thing? What is the biblical proof of the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life? The biblical proof of that. What is that? What is the necessary biblical evidence of the new birth, of being born again? What is the mark of genuine Christianity? But let's take that out of the abstract. We need to be asking ourselves the same question, don't we? What is the sole basis for God's favor towards me? And what do I believe is the certain evidence that I am indeed a recipient of that favor, of that grace? Do you know many professing believers can't answer those questions? Particularly the second question, the question about biblical evidence. Many base the evidence of their salvation on the wrong grounds. They set up various criteria as proof other than the criteria established in the Bible. That's a common mistake, and it's very, very dangerous. Christian, did you know that whatever claims you may make to great spiritual experiences and discoveries, if, 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 our, if our love for God right, is very great and overflows with rapturous joy, if we feel unparalleled spiritual peace and calm and assurance, if we enjoy stupendous visions and prophecies, if scripture texts just flood into our mind, unbidden, in the middle of the night, and if we pray in the tongues of angels, if we cast out demons and perform mighty miracles, if we endure persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, if we attend our times of corporate worship faithfully every week, if we give lots of money to the church, sacrificially and cheerfully, if we evangelize the lost every single chance we get, if we're a pastor and we preach sermons the envy of Charles Spurgeon, and sinners are saved in droves through our ministry, did you know 
that not one of those things is a certain sign of true redeeming grace in our life. That they can be signs of God's grace, but not necessarily. Which is why I'm so thankful to God for the opportunity to preach this passage today from James. This is super important stuff. In James 1, our Lord's half-brother teaches us how we can know God has saved us from our sin. How we can know that we are indeed spiritually whole persons. That the crown of life, eternal life, awaits us when we've finished our race and that we have not been spiritually deceived. That first question I ask, what is the basis of our salvation? What is the basis for God's favor towards undeserving sinners in granting full forgiveness and eternal life? The answer, did you get this? Is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Our forgiveness is purchased at the expense of Jesus' substitutionary, wrath-absorbing debt. That is the basis of human salvation. And of course, uh, the salvation blessings our Lord has won for His covenant people is appropriated through faith. Right? Faith is the means, it's the channel, the pipeline by which God grants salvation. And in answer to my second question, what is the mark of genuine Christianity? What is the certain biblical evidence that we are indeed a child of God, that you are a child of God, filled with God's Spirit? The answer is obedience. And James famously goes at that theme, hammer and tongs, until the end of chapter 2. You see, obedience to the Word is the mark, it's the evidence of genuine Christianity. Obedience to the Word, our title today, The Evidence of Spiritual Wholeness. Which means, negatively, if we're not obedient to the Word planted in us, if we're not living how God commands, if we're not getting rid of the moral filth and the evil in our lives, then we're deceiving ourselves. We need to repent and get back on track. You look in your bulletin, point one, Christian, examine. Examine your obedience, and thus your spiritual wholeness, because the two go hand in hand. Hasty speech and anger do not please God. You read in verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I was in grade six when I first saw the Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Western classic, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. That movie changed my life, folks. It blew my little 12-year-old brain. And my entire perception of coolness and toughness and manliness was forever changed in that moment. Clint Eastwood's character, the man with no name, probably has 30 lines of dialogue in the entire film. Connected. Clint, Clint is the sort of man who lets his 45 do the talking. And when I went to school the next day, I distinctly remember sitting in class and not saying a word. I was being deliberately silent because that was cool. 
That was tough. I had like a personality transformation. Uh, we read in the book of Proverbs, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Connected. Of Ready course, for use. Of course, little 12-year-old Johnny's silence had nothing to do with being wise, right? It had everything to do with being cool. Though actually, being Connected. a good listener, not waiting for other people to stop talking so that we can jump in and dominate the conversation. That sort of counsel is found frequently in the Bible, isn't it? Scripture considers it a display of wisdom. Proverbs 17, 28. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Connected. Basically, Solomon's saying, don't give people proof that you're a moron. Right? Just hold your tongue. People will think that you're a really discerning person. Proverbs 17, 27. Those who have knowledge use words with restraint. And those who have understanding are even-tempered. Which suggests the quick-tempered person is likely to speak without consideration. Right? It, it suggests uncontrolled anger leads to uncontrolled speech. That's something we can all relate to, right? We've all been there. How often have you found yourself regretting something you said in the, in the heat of the moment? Right? As soon as the words pass your lips, you thought, oh no. I shouldn't have said that. I was angry. I need to, need to bring those words. Now that those words were out there forever. I said that in anger. James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has redeemed, and he is transforming our entire person. Our, our, our Lord doesn't leave pockets of our personality or our inner being untouched by his sanctifying grace. Thank God. And emotions are the product of the entire person. Emotions don't reside in some unregulated compartment of our heart Right? impervious to the actions of the Holy Spirit. Our emotions don't live in a wild west town with no sheriff. Which is why God can command us to control our sinful emotions. We're not to suppress them or ignore them. We're to bring them into conformity with the will and the word of God. Our anger and the hasty speech that gives vent to our anger is a sin issue. It's an obedience issue. Look at verse 20 again. Anger does not bring about the righteousness God desires. So it's not just some arbitrary divine rule, nor is it a matter God can just wink at and ignore because we think it's an unrealistic expectation to govern one's emotions. Not at all. Human anger doesn't produce the behavior, doesn't produce the righteous life that's pleasing to God, nor does Hasty, uncontrolled speech. Why? Because they violate the standard of conduct that God demands of his people. You see, this is an obedience issue. Thus, it relates to our spiritual wholeness. And if this is an area in our sanctification, our progressive holiness that we've allowed to get away from us, if, if these are sins that we become lazy and combative, then we need to repent. Not listening to people. 
hasty speech, anger. Those aren't mere peccadillos, right? Relatively small and unimportant sins way down on the scale of God's concern. Oh, there is a contempt of God in all sin. Even so-called small sins. What Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Have you heard that term before? Respectable sins? Respectable sins are the sins we overlook and tolerate because they're the common, subtle sins of believers. Sins like gossip, anger, worry, and frustration, just a few. Those are all respectable sins. I mean, you, you could tell me this morning as you're walking in the door that, you know, you're, you're worried or you're frustrated about something, and maybe I wouldn't even bat an eye. You know? I just might jump in and say, well, yeah, that, those things worry too. I too am frustrated with that. Not in a please pray for me sense. Not in a confess your sins to one another sense. Now, we don't even really think of worry and frustration as being sin, do we? Those emotions are just part and parcel of the human condition or something. That's how we think of You see, we, we overlook respectable sins, not, because, not only because they're pervasive, but also because they don't seem as bad as, say, abortion or sex trafficking or exploiting the poor. I mean, sure, that's not, that's sin. But our gossip and our worry our frustrations, our anger, our hasty speech, those are all insignificant minor infractions in comparison. So we turn a blind eye and continue to allow them to fester in our lives. In our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But think of it like this. A, a tiny bullet, just, just a fragment of shrapnel, can kill a person just as dead as a massive artillery shell, right? And if a person is, a person lives in unrepentant, habitual, respectable, small sins, that proves they have no love for God. It proves they have no sincere care to please and honor God. If a professing believer can say, this command over here, this is a great, important, non-negotiable, divine command. That's why I really need to strive to keep that one. But this command over here, oh, that's just a, that's just a little command. And uh, I can safely disregard that one. I can pretty much live a life of unrepentant defiance in relation to this sin over here, because it's just so small and insignificant. If a professing believer can say that, they're deceiving themselves. We're going to be declaring war on all our sin, the little sins, as well as the big ones. Growth in Christian obedience is to be the main business of our Christian life. And that growth is going to persist through every season, no matter the trials we face, no matter the testings that God sends our way. Christian, examine your obedience, and thus your spiritual wholeness. Hasty speech and anger do not please God. Which leads then to our second point. Obedience to the Word is the mark of genuine Christianity. Therefore, Christian, get rid of the sinful filth in your life and accept the Word planted in you. Do not deceive yourself. Do not merely listen to the Word. Obey it. Carefully study God's Word. Obey it and be blessed. James' train of thought here couldn't be clearer. Those who have experienced the new birth 
by means of God's word, verse 18, must accept that word by doing it. Right? I mean, it's not enough just to talk the talk. Real Christians, real Christians, walk in obedience. I don't want it to be confused, though. Perhaps you're thinking, wait a second, John, I thought Christianity was all about grace. A relationship with God that's unmerited and unearned. It really striking the works component of things there, the obedience component. Well, no, if you're wrong, actually, it's not all about grace. Not all of it. Yes, the sinner's forgiveness is purchased at the price of Christ's substitutionary, wrath-absorbing death. That is the basis of human salvation, the sole basis. It has nothing to do with being a good person or earning favor with God. Nothing. And of course, the salvation blessings Jesus has won for his people are appropriated to the means of faith. Faith is the channel by which God grants salvation. But what James is emphasizing here, all the way to the end of chapter 2, and this is really the first of sort of three sermons in the miniseries of this, what he's emphasizing here, all the way to the end of chapter 2, is that genuine faith vindicates itself in obedient action. Obedient action is the evidence of salvation, of true biblical faith. In fact, James goes on to tell us, regardless of how orthodox on a confessional level our faith may be, without works, without deeds, without obedience to God, our faith is no faith at all. It's a dead, lifeless sham. It's no better than the faith of demons. He actually says that in chapter 2. Demons think there's one God. A demon's theological confession is more robust than any of ours. They know everything. Our theology can be bang on. But without deeds, without a faith that works, without the work of Christian obedience, we possess a bogus faith which cannot save which is what this sermon in the next two is all about. So let me just read us some biblical texts related to Christian obedience. You don't have to read this along, but I'll just say it out to you. 1 John 2, 3. We know that we have come to know God if we keep His commands. There, you see the distinction there? It's not, we, we come to know God if we keep His commands. That would be a works-based salvation. It says, we know that we have come to know God if we keep His commands. Those who say, I know Him, but do not do what He commands are liars, and the truth is not in them. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Oh, 1 Peter 1, 23, the 2, 2. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and all the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, get rid, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, Hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, 
so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. James 1.21 Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. <clears throat> so you see, both James and Peter are expressing a familiar teaching and teaching Christians must heed today and until Jesus returns in glory. Christians have been born from above, born again. God has planted his word within us. There has been a supernatural transformation. We are new creatures, a new creation in Christ Jesus. And with this new state of spiritual affairs, there is an inevitable behavioral consequence. Obedient doing. That means all true Christians will shun the kind of behavior associated with the old life we used to live. And begin living by the center of the word planted in us, the gospel, which has saved us. We will live like what we are, forsaking the moral filth and evil of the world. Look at verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Evil and moral filth is so prevalent in this fallen world. It's like we're wearing a garment that's been sprayed by a skunk. So James says, get rid of that garment. Take it off. You're a Christian now. Live like what you are. Produce the righteousness that God requires. But notice James does not say, take off that disgusting, filthy robe and put on a new clean robe. He doesn't say that. That's not what he's arguing for. Instead, he wants us to focus our attention on the influence of God's word in producing obedient behavior. 21b. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. That means, as Christians, we need to accept this implanted word. It's a free gift. It's not something that we earn. Accept the word planted in you, and we must accept it humbly, James says, with a poverty of spirit and full acknowledgement of our spiritual bankruptcy. This planted word is a gift from God that we do not deserve, which we could never earn. And beloved, this planted word which saves us, this isn't something that people naturally have within from birth. This is a promise of the new covenant. Make no mistake, James isn't speaking of some external code here, an external code like the Law of Moses or the Ten Commandments, an external code God's people obeyed in the power of the flesh. No, this is the planted word that supernaturally transforms us as God writes His law on our hearts. When we read our Old Testaments, it's anything but a history of covenantal faithfulness, is it? Israel failed catastrophically over and over and over to obey the law God had given to them. Israel made it very clear that human beings, that the human heart is not capable of submitting to external rules. I mean, they had 1,500 years to do so. They never did. A new interior work would need to be done if there was to be covenantal obedience among God's people. God must, in fact, give His people a new heart. Again, this is not religious language, right? It's, it's a reality. It, it speaks about new covenant reality, a new heart, so that we can respond truly and obediently to God's commands. If you would, 
I want us to turn to one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, 31. It's an easy text to remember, Jeremiah 31, 31. It's on page 789, we're using our church Bibles. Listen to this glorious promise. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. We just celebrated that new covenant this morning, didn't we, before supper? It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Can you see? No longer tablets of stone, an external code. God is going to write his word on his people's hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. New City, what is this planted word that we are to humbly accept, which has the power, has the power to save? Verse 21, to regenerate, to give us birth, verse 18. And verse 25 is to be equated with the law of freedom, right? Power to save, to regenerate, and it's the law of freedom. It's the word of the gospel. This is, the word, this is what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his eternal son for sin. James is telling us that the living, transforming power of the gospel has taken up supernatural residence within the believer... And we prove that fact every single day by our obedience. God's word that saved us isn't something that can be dispensed with after our salvation, after our conversion. When God plants his word in his people's hearts, it's permanent. His word is forever an inseparable part of the believer. A guiding, commanding presence within us. Verse 22, that's why you can write, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves go away and immediately forget what they look like. But those who look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The word through which we are born into new life and which becomes implanted in us is a word that must be put into practice. People, but people do not merely listen to the word, but people who merely listen to the word, but don't do what this word says, deceive themselves. That's what James writes. They're blinded to the reality of their true religious state. Because God's word cannot be divided into parts. If you want the benefits of the saving power, we must also embrace it as the rule of life. There is no such thing as accepting Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. There is no such thing as what's called in some circles a carnal Christian. It's an oxymoron to say so-and-so is a Christian, but they're not living for the Lord. They're not repenting of sin. They're a Christian but they're not producing the righteousness God requires. They're a Christian, but the tenor of their life is characterized by unrepentant sin. 
That's an impossibility. Matthew 7.21. Again, I want us to turn there if you would. Matthew 7.21 on page 972. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. You workers of lawlessness, is what it says. And what makes this judgment seem so tragic is that these people take themselves to be real believers, don't they? They expect, they expect to be granted admission into the consecrated kingdom. And they're shocked. They're unprepared. When Jesus, who they thought was their Savior, disowns them. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I don't know how it's possible for any professing Christian just to kind of skim over that verse without stopping for five minutes and really thinking about that. Friends, Jesus tells us there are many people, that's the word he uses, many, who use the right language and who even perform spiritual wonders in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, who are not his genuine disciples. So if that's the case, what is then the essential characteristic of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? If it's not loud professions of Lord, Lord, or spectacular spiritual triumphs or great spiritual experiences, then what is it? The true believer's chief characteristic is... Obedience. True believers do the will of the Father. True believers obey Jesus' words. True believers are not evildoers. True believers are not workers of lawlessness. As Don Carson puts it, the Father's will is not simply admired, discussed, praised, or debated. It's done. And so, Christian, look to your own life. Right now, as you sit in your chair, don't be spiritually deceived. Take note of this. Don't be spiritually deceived. Be honest with yourself. Did you perhaps enjoy some spiritual experience in the past, and now you're really you're living in the glow of that experience? You're coasting on its spiritual fumes, rather than living a present life of repentant faith and obedience. Listen. It's true that no person enters into the consummated kingdom because of their obedience. We're saved on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. But it's equally true that no one enters the kingdom who is habitually, unrepentantly disobedient. God's saving grace in a person's life inevitably results in a life of repentant obedience. Not sinless perfection, I'm not saying that. But a life that is characterized by humble obedience. 
Entrance into the kingdom turns not on the obedience which earns merit points, but which bows the need of Jesus Christ's lordship in everything without reservation. Even those small respectable sins. Many will cry out to Jesus on the last day, Lord, Lord, but he will cast them from his presence. Not because their theology is unorthodox, but because they practice evil. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be you. That's horrifying. James 1.23 Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves go away and immediately forget what they look like. James is using this look in the mirror to illustrate the superficial and temporary effect the word has on those who hear it without doing it. They get no more lasting benefit from the word than they do from looking at their face in a mirror while combing their hair. But those who look intently at the perfect law, verse 25, that gives freedom and continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And you'll notice that the implanted word the word that has the power to save us, verse 21, and to regenerate us, verse 18, has now, in verse 25, become the perfect law that gives freedom, the perfect law that gives liberty. And James says if we look intently, intently, this perfect law, and continue in it, not forgetting what we heard, but doing it, then we will be blessed. And this verse opens up near the end of this sermon, not a diverting rabbit trail, but a diverting superhighway. I'm only going to make a few comments today. We've looked at this many times in the past at New City, and we'll be returning to look at it again next week, Lord willing, in some more depth. This can be confusing, though, because when we think of law, we naturally think about the law of Moses, don't we? The law God gave the descendants of the Jewish patriarch Abraham at Mount Sinai, when he entered into a covenant relationship with Israel after delivering them from Egypt. But this perfect law in James 1, this perfect law is not, it's not a reference to the law of Moses, that covenant. The salvation history timeline has moved forward. James is writing to new covenant Christians. What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? This cup is the new covenant. It made in my blood. And James is writing now after that. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 17 that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. That means the old Mosaic covenant, all it was pointing to, and the way it is properly obeyed now, is in Jesus Christ. New covenant Christians are no longer under the law of Moses. The Apostle Paul says that we're under, instead, the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. So, this perfect law, James calls it, that gives freedom, does not refer to the law of Moses. It can't, that's impossible. After all, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that the law of Moses has a definite sin-producing, sin-intensifying function. It has brought knowledge of sin, 320. Wrath, 
4.15. The law of Moses. Transgression, 5.13-14. And an increase in the severity of sin, 5.20. The same apostle says in 1 Corinthians 5.56, the law of Moses is the power of sin. That means there can be no final liberation from the power of sin through the law of Moses. The law given to Israel Mount Sinai is not the perfect law that gives freedom. This perfect law that gives freedom does not refer to the law of Moses, but rather to the law of Moses as interpreted and supplemented by Jesus Christ. James is just assuming here that we've understood that salvation historical progression that Jesus taught his people in Matthew 5.17. Uh, again, we'll give you this more next week. I'll unpack that a little bit more. But God's law, the law of Christ, is now eschatologically perfect and it gives freedom. Freedom, beloved. It's the law that's written on our hearts in fulfillment of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. That's what he's talking about. And accompanied by the work of the indwelling spirit, enables obedience in God's people to our Lord's commands. And it's the one who looks intently into the law of Christ and perseveres in it who is blessed in what they do. And the blessing James is talking about refers to future blessing. Right? The crown of life, eternal life. The fully consummated salvation that comes in the new heavens and new earth. Brothers and sisters, could obedience be made to look any more important? I mean, what else could he, James, possibly say to really, really stress that we must be an obedient people? It's tied up with eschatological blessing. Yes, James promises we will be blessed on that last day if we've been doers of the word and not merely listeners. So, I'm taking a bit of the late sausage approach in this sermon today. I think we've gone as far as we can in the time allowed. So we'll pick up next week in the same spot. Still considering, though, the same theme. Just part two, really. Obedience to the word the evidence of spiritual wholeness. James is just getting started. Zeroing in next week, actually, on favoritism in the church, in particular. Let me close by asking again, Christian, do you see any habitual, unrepentant patterns of sin in your life? Even in very small areas, those so-called respectable sins. Don't deceive yourselves. You can see in our holes in point three how James concludes the chapter. He introduces themes we'll be getting we'll be getting into at greater length later in the letter. I'm not going to get into this right now. We'll be circling back in verses 26 and 27 repeatedly throughout the series. But as you can see, in those verses, James introduces three ways Christians obey the word. We obey the word by controlling our tongue. We obey the word. By our concern for the helpless. And we obey the word by avoiding the moral pollution of the world. Those who consider themselves religious, verse 26, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. The religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after widows, orphans, and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. His point being, of course, religion without those things is useless. Obedience to the word is the mark of genuine Christianity. It's the evidence of spiritual holiness. So, get 
rid of the moral, of the sinful filth in your life, and humbly accept the words and opinion. Live like what you are, Christian. Live like what you are, a child of the new covenant. Don't deceive yourself. Do not merely listen to the word. Obey it and be blessed.